This is the Stories from 1916 podcast. Using first-hand accounts and archive material, we tell the less well-known stories of ordinary men and women who did extraordinary things during Ireland's revolutionary period. Matthew Connolly was just 15 when he fought alongside his sister and three brothers under the banner of the Irish Citizen Army in the Easter Rising. Matthew described the scene in Liberty Hall, their headquarters, in the lead-up to the Rising. Each man not on guard was lending a hand to one job or another. The armoury room on the first floor was a busy place. Improvised hand grenades were being manufactured. Cartridges were being altered to fit rifles and guns for which they were never meant. Bayonets of an old French type were being heated over a blow lamp and bent or reshaped to fit an old German Mauser rifle. It was quite a common thing on entering the armoury room to find a man sitting over the fire, brewing a can of tea to one side and melting a pot of lead on the other. Two or three men at a bench, making some repairs to a rifle while, at the same time, two or three others were stretched on the bare floor, snoring, fast asleep. On Easter Monday, James Connolly assembled his troops and announced that they were now fighting alongside the Irish Volunteers as the Irish Republican Army. I fell into line under my brother, Captain Sean Connolly, and as our company passed down the stairs on the landing, I was handed two homemade grenades. They were made from canisters of milk tins, with a small stump of fuse projecting from one end on which was a blob of sulphur like the end of a match. They weighed about four or five pounds each and were crudely soldered and as my coat pockets were on the small side I had a troublesome time trying to get the bombs into them. Each man was told to strike the sulphur on a wall or stone, count to three and then throw if and when the enemy was at close quarters. The Irish Citizen Army marched out of Liberty Hall and across the Liffey to Dame Street. They gained access to City Hall through a side door. It was very dark inside and to give us light we held a door outside ajar. Another door in a side wall refused to budge so we demolished it with the butts of our rifles only to discover that behind it was a built-in cupboard. Meanwhile shooting had started outside somewhere on the main thoroughfare. We left this chamber to find ourselves in the basement of City Hall. Sean Connolly ordered them up to the roof to defend the building in case of attack. A troop of lancers on horseback, numbering about 20 in all, moved at an easy pace along Norman Quay in the direction of the Phoenix Park. They made a fine show as the horses pranced and helmets glistened in the sunlight. I asked Sean if we should open fire on them and he said no. They will get up before they go much further. And he was right. About five minutes later, a volley of shots rang out from the direction of the four courts and the lancers, about one quarter of their original number, came charging back along the quays. The soldiers were bent down over their horses' necks, sparks flying from their hooves in a flash. They were out of sight. The British army, caught largely unawares by the rebellion, had to improvise armoured cars using large metal tanks taken from the Guinness Brewery. One of these came along the quays and approached Matthew Connolly's position. Shortly afterwards, a strange-looking lorry carrying a huge horizontal cylinder turned off the quays onto Parliament Street. It had a large steel plate in front, completely covering the driver's cab, with just a vision slit cut in it through which the driver could see. Sean told us not to open fire until he gave the order. The lorry came nearer and nearer, and as it reached the corner of Dame Street, the order, which was loud enough for all men on the adjoining buildings to hear, came and a volley of fire rang out. 
The lorry stopped and started again and in a jerking manner slowly crawled up the slope while we poured down a hail of lead on it. It stopped at the castle gates and as the military driver stepped out, he immediately fell to the ground and lay still. The firing upon the roof became heavy and as Sean Connolly crossed, he was mortally wounded by a sniper in Dublin Castle. He was the first insurgent killed in action during the rising. I moved carefully up the slates of a roof slope nearby in order to cut across to the opposite side of the building, to where I might have a word with Sean before it was too late. But as I reached the top of the slope, a burst of rifle fire splintered the slates around me and it was impossible to cross over the top without being hit. I did, however, get a glimpse of Sean lying wounded. And then I realised it was much more important to man the position allotted to me. If the enemy was to approach from my side of the building, the consequences would be serious for our little garrison. So with my rifle ready, I stood and I watched. In the evening, Dr Kathleen Lynn inspected the men and found that Matthew was exhausted, having not slept in days due to the intensive preparations. She ordered him to rest. When I awoke, must have been some hours afterwards, the building seemed to vibrate with explosions and the rattle of machine guns. The room was dark, glass crashed, doors and woodwork were being shattered and somewhere in the building women screamed. I heard a familiar voice shouting, Come in off the roof! I could not see a thing but felt my way along the wall until I came to the door and opened it, stepped into the corridor. It was crowded with British military and a small glimmer of light coming from one of the rooms was reflected in the shining bayonets and cap badges. They were talking excitedly with English accents and although quite close to me I couldn't understand a word that they said. Turning quickly into the room again I shut the door and stood back from it with my rifle at the ready determined to shoot the first one who tried to enter. Five minutes must have passed and nothing happened except that the shuffling of feet and incoherent voices became more faint. The firing had died down and the machine gunning had ceased. My eyes gradually became accustomed to the darkness and I could see the outline of the bed and beyond it the form of a stepladder rising to the ceiling. This I mounted and passed through a small door out onto the roof again. I crept along to the spot from which I had been relieved earlier but there was nobody there this time. There were boards along the valley gutters between the sloping sections of the roof. These I traversed in an effort to find out where my comrades had gone, but without success until I came across the body of my brother, Sean. I knelt to say a prayer for his departed soul. Still exhausted and presumably overcome with grief for his brother, Matthew fell asleep where he lay on the roof. A hand gripped the shoulder of my coat and a voice shouted, Get up! My eyes opened to see a revolver pointed at me. The man was an officer in a khaki uniform and it was now daylight. He asked if I was wounded and being told no, he called out for an escort. Sean's body lay near me and I I thought it would not be long until my soul would join his. My escort stood behind me while another soldier took off my equipment and turned out my pockets. When the search was completed, I asked that my rosary and my small brass crucifix should be returned. The rosary was handed back, but the crucifix was refused. On a piece of paper in his pocket was a poem called The Hymn on the Battlefield by Countess Markievicz. The soldier searching him didn't seem able to reconcile the idealistic and nationalist theme of the poem with the young boy standing before him. He looked into my face, and then back at the paper as if I were mad. 
I was then pushed into a dark cell which was off a narrow passage adjacent to the guard room. There were a few inches of stagnant water on the floor and the smell was sickening. Having survived the rising, Matthew Connolly trained as an architect. Appropriately, he was responsible for the renovation of the GPO, forecourts and other national buildings for the 1966 commemoration ceremonies. For more on the Connollys of the Citizen Army, watch out for our short documentary on Sean Connolly. Many thanks to Owen Nocton for reading Matthew Connolly's witness statement. I'm Owen Cody. Thanks for listening.